resuming this weekend our series on James and we're going to look at chapter 4 today and then next weekend we'll conclude that series by going to chapter 5. And uh, to begin this I just want to encourage you if you haven't been reading along with us um, I encourage you to do that. James isn't a long book so even if you haven't done that you can easily catch up this week. Most of us have never experienced what it's like to live in a war zone. Um, We watch the news and we certainly understand that there are parts in this world that that is the reality for a lot of people. That on a day-to-day basis, I mean, imagine trying to raise kids. Imagine um, being a young adult. Imagine being an older couple living and experiencing the pain and the reality of being in a war zone. However, there were a few decades in our nation's history in the 50s, 60s, and 70s where that threat was quite a possibility. It was August 29th, 1949. The Soviet Union detonated their first nuclear weapon, bringing them into the nuclear arms race that would come to be known as the Cold War era. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today if you were alive and remember that day in 1949, but I'm sure some of you do. And as a result of this, the idea was possible that every American could experience war. It could show up at our front doorstep. And a part of that, or in response to that rather, President Harry Truman in the early 1950s, and actually it was 1951, created and implemented a program called Duck and Cover with our kids. And what they did was they created this cartoon-like video that helped educate children on what to do should the threat of a nuclear bomb come to reality. And this video included a turtle named Bert the Turtle. And the idea was this, that if the alarm sounded and there was a threat of a nuclear bomb going off, children would duck and then hide under these really hard, sturdy wooden desks. Does anybody remember the wooden desks? Now, we're not going to debate and argue whether that was a successful reaction, whether it would have worked or not. But the point is this. While we may not live in a war zone, while we may not face battlefields like other parts of the world today or the threat in the 1950s, each of us do experience war. Our lives are daily battlefields. From the moment we wake up until tonight when we hit our heads on the pillow, we are engaged in combat. We're engaged in a war that is not easily won. A war in which casualties can include every person that we come into contact with, 
and even our souls for eternity. And there is no duck and cover solution. We experience relational battles within our community. There are personal battles each of us fight in the privacy of our own heart and mind. And then there are spiritual battles that are fought in arenas that we cannot see but we most certainly feel. In the fourth chapter, James, the brother of Jesus, speaks to these wars within us. And then he gives us a battle plan. A battle plan that leads us to peace. And a battle plan that leads us to having a victorious faith. Here's what I would like us to do. Every so often um, we do this. I'm going to invite you to stand and I want us to read God's word together again. Come on, let's all stand. They're going to put it on the screen behind me and on the monitor here. Let's read God's word, our text for today. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says... God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughing to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we need your word today to give us truth. We need your spirit's power to transform. So in both, we invite you today into our hearts, into our minds, to change the way we think and to change ultimately the way in which we act and live. Would you do this in the authority of your name? Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In the text that we just read, James references three battles that rage among us. And then he gives us a three-step solution, if you will, to have peace to those battles or to live a victorious faith in the midst of them. So let's look at those three battles first. First of all, James talks about a battle for unity. There is a battle that we face in a war within our faith community. And here's what I mean by that. First, let's look at what he said in verse 1. He asked the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, in week 1, we talked about the, the specific people that this letter was written to. Does anybody remember? Who was James writing this letter to? Okay, well, I did a great job of teaching that weekend. James was writing this to the church. Specifically, he was writing it to Jewish Christians. He was writing it to Jewish followers of Jesus. So obviously, because James is asking this question, it 
gives reason to say that there was fighting and there was quarrels among the Christian community, among the Jewish Christian community. And unfortunately, this is not a problem isolated to first century Christians. We have plenty of evidence that Christians are still quarreling and fighting today. There's plenty of evidence, and if you doubt me, simply hop on Twitter, hop on Facebook, and you will find plenty of people who love Jesus, who are following Jesus with all of your heart, all of their hearts. You will find pastors, ministry leaders, faith leaders that are arguing over secondary doctrines and dividing. All you have to do is bring up the subject of politics, and you will find people arguing within the faith community. Talk about generational issues. Talk about black and white ethnic issues. You can bring up a large group of topics and you will find Christians fighting and quarreling. Drive through the neighborhoods and see the amount of churches. Oftentimes they're not birthed out of a desire to plant churches. They're church splits over doctrine and crazy things, worship wars, all of that. And James is asking the question, why? Why is this happening? And my question is, should this really be the case? No, it shouldn't. The psalmist reminds us it's a good thing. It's a pleasant thing when God's people live together in unity. Not too long ago, I preached the message and our theme for the year was as one that the world would know. And it was based out of John chapter 17, one of the final public prayers of Jesus, where Jesus not only praying for his followers then that were with him, but praying for future followers of Jesus. He was praying for you and I. And what did he pray for? He prayed for our unity. And he said that our unity, our oneness, would be a demonstration to the world that he is real. As one that the world would know. He connects our unity directly to the mission of us reaching people for Jesus. And here for us as a church family, ACAC, here's where I get really excited. Because of God's calling for us to walk in diverse community, we have an amazing opportunity to model to a divided and polarized world in a a society that says, you vote that way, well, then you sit over here. You are that age group, well, then you sit here. Um, You look that way, then you sit here. We divide and we polarize. But as a church that walks in diversity, Black, white, red, green, really white, old, young, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor. We have an amazing opportunity to show the world that it's possible to live and love one another, to walk in unity. What if we modeled to the world, you mean to tell me? That a Republican and Democrat can sit and worship side by side and not fight? Yeah, it is possible through Jesus. You mean to tell me that a 90-year-old who loves O Victory in Jesus and a 16-year-old who loves whatever song that repeats over and over again can sit (laughs) side by side and worship through whatever it may be? Yes, I mean it's possible through Jesus. You mean to tell me that... A black man and a white man and an Indian man and a half Mexican pastor can sit together, worship together, and not be divided? Yes, it's possible through Jesus. What if we modeled that to the world? James is saying, 
There's a battle for unity in the church. Here's the second battle James talks about. There's a battle for holiness. Not only are we often at war with those around us, but each of us are also battling privately to do what we know is right. I don't think I could say it any better than the Apostle Paul in one of my favorite um, texts of Scripture in the book of Romans. Romans is a fantastic book. I mean, just Paul lays out doctrine and great theology, and then at the end he moves to very practical application of that doctrine. But tucked in a few verses in chapter 7, it's almost as he puts the outline down and he just opens up his heart and he's fully transparent. And he says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me. And he says, I have discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. He said, I love God's law. I love God's word with all my heart. But there's something, there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. How many of you ever felt like that? Of course you have. It's like we want to do what's right. But doggone it, we just do what's wrong. And when we don't want to do what's wrong, we end up doing it anyway. And Paul is saying there's a war. There is a battle that is raging within us. James calls out why we find ourselves battling with each other. He says we fight with each other because of this war that's inside of us. The second part of that verse 1, he says... You have fights within your community and the faith community because it comes from these desires that battle within you. Same thing Paul's talking about, sin. You desire but you do not have so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want so you quarrel and you fight. He even then moves to prayer. James says you don't have because you don't ask God. However, when you ask, when you do pray, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Paul... James even says, when you pray, there's a battle that's raging within you. It's not that, well, you just don't have because you don't ask. Yeah, when you do ask, you're asking and praying for things that satisfy your flesh, your desires. It's not a prayer that says, your will be done, not mine. It's, Father, would you give me this because this is my will and what I want. And there's that battle that's raging within us. There's a third battle that James talks about, a battle for unity, a battle for holiness that's within us, and then there is a battle for loyalty, loyalty to God, loyalty to his kingdom. And James really saves the best for last because this battle is the preposis of the other two battles. The root cause of every war, both external in relationships and internal within us, is rebellion against God. There is a battle of loyalty to God for every follower of Jesus. When we follow him, we either are going to choose his ways, the God's kingdom ways, God, the kingdom of God, or we are going to choose to follow and hold on to the ways of this world, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. James writes in verse 4, he calls us adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He says, don't love the world. 
That's John. Go to the next one, please. John says, do not love this world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have with the love of the Father. You don't have the love of the Father in you. For the world... The world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. John writes in his first letter, these are not from the Father, but they are from this world. So what does that mean, friend of the world? James writes about it. John writes about it. Brian McMillan was here last weekend, and he talked about Lazarus and preached a great message, and he challenged us. And he asked us, how many of you have non-Christian friends? Well, wait a second. Does being a friend of the world mean we shouldn't have non-Christian friends? No. Brian was spot on. If you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus sought after people, was in relationship with people who thought differently, looked differently, believed differently. So James is not saying that being a friend of the world means we shouldn't um, have any non-Christian friends, that we should cut us off, cut off relationally from people who aren't Christ followers. No. What he's saying there is that the systems of the world we should not love, value, and engage in. What do you mean by systems, Pastor Allen? There's the kingdom of God, and then there is the kingdom of this world. What are some of the systems of the kingdom of this world? I'll give you a couple. One is materialism. John talks about it in his first letter. Meaning, when we are more concerned about us and our needs... When it's we are thinking and processing and we go to sleep at night dreaming about what kind of car we're going to buy or what kind of clothes or it's about gathering and hoarding things. You can go back to talking about worship and giving and recognizing that everything we have is God. It's, it's, It's materialism that we want to gain more and more. That is embracing the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of God that is about giving and loving and serving others. God, you've given to me so I can bless and help others. Individualism is another one. It's a kingdom of this world that I will do whatever I can to make Alan succeed. I will engage in systems that put other people down. I will grasp the power of this world so that I can succeed, regardless of who it hurts. Where the kingdom of God says, no, I'll pick up my cross and die daily and I'll put my brother, my sister before me. I will serve them. So being a friend of the world is saying, no, I value these systems. I value materialism. I I value individualism. I'm not going to die and serve and love and give. The final battle is that battle for loyalty. First is battle of unity. The second is a battle for holiness with us and a battle of loyalty. So then what's the solution? How do we find peace? How do we live a victorious life in these battles that we all face? As unnatural as it may seem, as counterintuitive as it is, James' key is this. Complete victory is only won through unconditional surrender. If we want to see complete victory in our life, to live and have a victorious faith, the only way to win is to lose. The only way to find peace, the only way to win is to surrender. It's to hold the white flag in your heart and mind and completely surrender to God. If you want peace, if you want to win, it's counterintuitive. It's opposite of the ways of this world. It's you surrender completely. 
James prescribes three solutions to finding peace and walking in victory. First is through submission, that we have to submit to God. It's pretty plain, it's pretty clear, it's pretty simple. Verse 7, he says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice he did not say resist the devil and he will flee and then submit. You need to submit first. Now that word submit is a military word. How many of you ever served your, your vet today? You served in our armed forces at some point. Okay, well then you un, you'll understand this concept pretty good. How many of you, let me ask you this way. How good would it go if a private started acting like a general? It wouldn't go very well. No, the general would smack him upside the head, yell at him. He'd be peeling a lot of potatoes. James is saying that to us. He's saying, know your rank. Know your role. You're not the general. You're the private. King Jesus is the general. And he's saying, understand your role, that we live in submission to King Jesus. Paul, in that same letter I mentioned, Romans, said the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit. It doesn't know its place according to God's law or his word, nor can it do so. Now, how many understand submitting is not natural? We don't even like that word. Brian said we like the word sinner. Well, we really don't like the word submit. I mean, it just doesn't even sound good. Those of you that have kids or grandkids, I want you to go home today and at lunch and just tell your kid, you need to submit to me today and see how well that goes. Maybe later this week when I'm meeting with Pastor Blaine and Pastor Ross, I'm going to say, guys, I need you to submit to me in this moment, and here's what I want you to do. That wouldn't go well. I'd never do that at a boss. We just don't like that word. We don't like submission. But submission is an act of the will. We don't like it because we don't like people telling us what to do. We want our own way, our own desires. But James is saying, no, not your will, but Jesus. And when we submit to God, when we submit to his ways, his will, he tells us that we will find peace with God. And it will then overflow into our hearts. We'll have peace with God. We'll be at peace with ourselves. And it will overflow to peace in our relationships. Submit to God. The second thing he prescribes in unconditional surrender is not only submission to God, but drawing near to God. That we're to draw near to God, to come near to God. James says this, come near and he will come near to you. Some of your Bibles say draw near. Understand that the closer you are to someone, the more likely you are to be like them. I love talking with couples who have been married for 50 plus years. You just see the synergy that is there. You know where they complete their own sentences and all that stuff. And just there's a sweetness and they're very much like each other. They are one there's no, you don't sense the battle raging. Why? They've got 50 years of being together and they're like each other. A.W. Tozer said, nearness is likeness. And the thing is that if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to find peace, then we need to be near him. We need to spend time with him. We need to be in his word. We need to be in prayer before him. We need to be in worship. King David wrote in Psalm 22.3, he said, God inhabits the praises of our people. 
of his people. God inhabits the praises of his people. Now, what did he mean by that? We understand that God is omnipresent. He is always with us. There is, as a, as a follower of Jesus, his spirit is in us. There is nowhere you can go. You can't take a trip or vacation anywhere in this world that God isn't with you. He's here with us right now. When you leave and get in your car, he's there. When you go home, he's there at work. He never leaves us. But that word inhabits in Hebrew, David uses a different type of word when he's talking about his presence. And David is saying that it is as though the king comes and he sits on a throne in the midst of his people. It's a different kind of presence. Meaning that when we as a church gather and Josh strikes those keys and we begin to lift our voice and sing and our hands are raised or you're in the car and you put that worship music on and you begin to sing or you do it in your home or your bedroom or wherever it may be, God comes in a unique and powerful way. It's a supernatural way. He comes and he sits and he inhabits our praises. It's a different kind of nearness. But we need to worship him. We need to submit to him. And then finally, James says we need to humble ourselves before God. Humble yourself before God. And he will lift you up. If we are going to be lifted up out of the relational tension and struggles and battles we face, if we want to be lifted up out of the internal battles that rage in our hearts and minds, we need to humble ourselves. We talked about this in verse 3 where James talks about our mouth, our tongue. Control your tongue or it will control you. And we talked about tone, how you can say the right thing but you can have the wrong tone. The same is true with actions. How many know you can do the right thing but you can do it with the wrong attitude? You tell your kids, will you please pick up your dishes? Fine. <laughs> and oh, it's just going, things are going. They're doing the right thing, but they're not doing it with the right heart. You can submit to God outwardly and still have a prideful heart. It's not about just doing the right thing. Again, God's target, Jesus' target is always the motives of our heart. And so humbling yourself is, God, not only do I want to do the right thing, but, Lord, I want to have a soft and contrite heart. I want to rid myself of selfishness and pride. Submitting is a matter of will. Humility is an issue of the heart. And Jesus said that if we give up our lives, we will find it. When we humble in ourselves and we surrender our perceived perceived rights, when we let go of any attempt to manipulate, we will find joy. We will find peace. It's in losing that we win. But I have to die to myself. And you have to die to yourself. Because complete victory is only won through unconditional surrender. Submit to God. Draw near to God. And humble yourself before God. Would you stand to your feet? Here's, here's what I want to say, though. I love James. It's just, it's so practical. You know, actions speak louder than words. He talks about that. Control your tongue. It's going to control you. Submit. <laughs> Humble yourself before God. Draw near to God. Here's where we can get in trouble, though. As we go through a very practical book, we can think that this is a try-harder series. 
yes, Pat. I'm going to go out these doors, and I'm going to submit to God. I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to worship. You laugh because you know that'll last about 15 minutes. So you get home, and then it all goes. It's not a try-hard thing. You can't do it. I can't do it. The Holy Spirit's working us is what does it. Our job is to come before him now when we wake up in the morning. Say, Father, today I need you. Spirit of God, I need you. I'm selfish. I want my life to be easy today. I want everybody to wait on Alan today. I want you to bless me today. But God, I lay that down. That's what I want. Father, I want your will. So if that means that I don't get my way today, if that means that I am serving today, Lord, that's what I want. And it's in that spirit and that heart that the Holy Spirit will begin to do its work. We'll find peace with God. We'll find peace within ourselves. And we'll find relational peace. Amen? Next week, here's what I want to let you know. We're going to conclude in James chapter 5, and we're going to focus on prayer. And here's what I really sense the Lord wanting from us, from me. I don't believe he wants me to give you a 25, 30-minute sermon on prayer. I believe he wants us to engage in prayer. And so for some of you, I'm just, I'm prepping you. Um, And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to share for about 10 minutes on prayer. And then we're going to move to a time of prayer, corporate prayer. Um, we're going to confess and repent privately of just whatever is in us. It begins there with confession and repentance. We're going to pray for our community here in the north side. We're going to pray for our city. We're going to pray for the nation. We are then going to pray for relationships. All of us have struggles. I know some of you broken relationships with your kids. Some of it's, we're going to pray for marriages. Some of you are single, just wrestling and walking through that call to singleness. We're going to pray for you. And then I've asked our elders to make sure that they're here for those services where we're going to anoint with oil and pray for healing. For some, that could be physical healing. For some, it could be spiritual, emotional healing. But I'm asking two things. One, I want you to pray this week. I just want you to pray that God would move and that we would see prayers answered. And then, if it's you, be here next week and let us pray together. If there's someone that you know that's sick in their body or going through a divorce or having struggle in the relationship with their kids, come and let us pray and let us believe that God answers. Amen. Don't try harder. Draw near. Submit. And let's humble ourselves. You're dismissed. <laughs>